Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Frame Lab podcast. I'm Gil Duran here with Dr. George Lakoff. Hey, George. Hi, Gil. Well, we're here on a very rainy afternoon in December to talk about a few things. Uh, first and foremost, based on our last conversation and on some conversations we've had on the side, we're going to talk about the authoritarian attack on democracy. I think for the past year, we've all felt a sense of relief that Joe Biden won, that Democrats have uh, the ability right now to stop the Trump Republicans from getting things done that they want done. But this is a brief window, perhaps, where that will be the case. We mm -hmm. see Trump and the Republicans making plans to return him to power. And it doesn't seem like they care a lot about whether they do that through Democratic means or not. Uh, we're increasingly seeing Republicans across the country uh, build power on the state level of elections operations and they want to make sure that if they get to another point where the electors have to go against the voters or the courts have to make a decision that they have full control of the apparatus and the mechanics of, of, of democracy. And recently when we were talking you said that we need to talk more about what's not being talked about and I asked you what you meant by that and you said we're not talking enough I mean I think in general as the American people about the fact that we're in the middle of an attempted authoritarian coup uh, on American democracy. I'm not sure that's the exact language you would use, but you know there are some people talking about it. There are some writers writing mm -hmm. about it, but it's definitely not the number one thing people see when they look at TV at night or when they open the newspaper even. Mm -hmm. um, and this week we did have a spurt of stories because there was a PowerPoint presentation that Trump's staff and supporters were circulating in an effort to get more Republicans to go along with the insurrection on January 6th. Barton Gelman of The Atlantic wrote a big important piece that gives an overview of how Republicans are laying the groundwork to steal the 2024 presidential election if necessary. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, I think, that it's time for us to start talking more about what's going on because in a, in a few more years, you know, we may may look back in regret that we didn't do more worrying about the, what the Republicans were up to. So understanding that the potential end of democracy is kind of boring and legalistic in some ways, let's talk about it today. Uh, why do you think that this doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Well, for a number of reasons. First, uh, there's a view, there's a, a lack of an important part of democracy in the public media, which is that democracy depends upon empathy. You know, the whole point of democracy is about caring about what other people feel and what, what their interests are, and that their interests are represented. And in general, Republicans don't care about that. They don't have that sense of empathy about caring, caring that the, uh, you know, what most people in the country uh, you know, care about or is, is represented. They don't care about their empathy in that way. They have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, and they want to impose it. And uh, and they think that you know, since it's right and not wrong from their point of view, they that's that's what they should be doing. I mean, that's their view. Uh, but it's a very different view from a view that has to do with empathy. And democracy is based on empathy. So that in a sense, if they're not talking about empathy, they're not uh, talking about democracy. They're talking about imposing uh, their will uh, through the mechanisms 
that are allowed to them in our democracy, but not uh, through, uh, you know, uh, what is empathetic toward people. It's a very different view of what democracy gives. It's a view and a view that ignores the fundamental aspect of democracy, that it's about empathy. Well, it sounds more like a, a Chinese definition of democracy. This week I saw that the Chinese government was running advertisements in certain American papers saying that Americans don't get to define alone what democracy is. And it seems to define Chinese democracy as our government, which is authoritarian, does what's good for the most people. And that's a valid version of democracy, according to them. It would seem that what you're saying here is that the Republicans and conservatives are formulating a similar idea of of democracy, which is not democracy at all, which is authoritarianism under the PR guise of something called democracy, because it does what they believe is necessary to be good for people. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that the key there is the lack of empathy, that that's what explains it? More. There's one more a big fact, that this is what strict father morality is about. That is, in a strict father family, the father determines what's right and wrong. He's the ultimate authority on what's right and wrong for everybody in the family. And uh, that is what's going on in China. And that is what goes on in authoritarian regimes. Uh, And the whole point of uh, saying, no, we want nurturant democracy, nurturant parent, not strict parent democracy. You know, democracy really is about empathy, about caring about what other people feel and think. But it can't be democracy at all if it is strict parent democracy, if it's no matter what the people want, this is what they get, right? Well, in in China, they call it that. They call it that because they think that democracy is what they impose uh, that is uh, what they think is best for everybody, Mm -hmm. not what everybody thinks is best for everybody. It's kind of Orwellian, though, isn't it? It's it's an attempt to reframe democracy as authoritarianism and to reframe authoritarianism as democracy, which it seems to me is exactly what the right wing here in the United States has been doing, which is to reframe a fair election as a stolen election and to lay the groundwork for an election they're going to steal while claiming that it was a fair election that was the ultimate expression of democracy. You got it. So I guess in some ways it's clear why it can be hard to keep up with and to uh, kind of inspect on a level beyond process and mere facts, what the ultimate strategy is here. Because it's not just in the United States that we see this attack on democracy, this march of authoritarianism. It's happening in multiple countries around the world. Um, but what do you think that the average citizen needs to, to do about this? Well, it's not clear that the average citizen by uh, him or herself can do anything alone. I mean, this is something for our society to do. It's something for elections. It's something for public discussion and public debate. And, uh, you know, it's not something that one citizen can can do. I mean, we have to, uh, you know, get the idea out there that democracy is really about empathy and, you know, about caring what other people uh, feel is good good for them. And, uh, you know, and this is, you know, extremely important. Do you think that might be too much of an abstract 
concept for most voters to handle. Yeah. Is you know when we say democracy is about the majority wins or democracy is about freedom. Uh, you know why is it important for people to understand empathy as a part of that? And do you think that the the press is capable of communicating that to people? Well, um, when I think about this, I go back to what my father told me when I was seven years old about democracy. Uh, he said, there's nobody better than you and you're not better than anybody else. Yeah. The quickest definition of democracy I have heard. And um, the idea of being better than has to do with uh, what society should be doing. You know, uh, and... Uh, you know, and it's not that it's the idea is that your idea about it isn't any better than anybody else's and other people's isn't better than yours. Uh, you know, that is a very important idea, you know, uh, in, in, in terms seven-year-old can understand. So it's about more than just the process of what makes democracy. You think we need that extra layer of of understanding of it or... Or what, what happens if we don't ever get to that? I often think that you do find that people are struggling to figure out, I guess on a moral level, how are the Republicans operating? How are they? What, what they're doing is so different, so fundamentally different from what most Americans see as right. But there's a chance they could still win. And... So I guess what you're saying is that we need to under we need to start looking on a deeper level at what those differences are, which is what a lot of your books have. To be fair, what a lot of your books have yeah, well, have that, tried to do. Well, that's what moral politics uh, as a book is about. I mean, <clears throat> about uh, the idea that there are lots of people who have strict father morality. They're not going away. <clears throat> They're going to be here, and they don't have nurturant morality. That is and. Uh, it's that view of what's right and wrong that's important. And we don't agree on what's right and wrong. That's, you know, a very important fact. And people with strict father morality tend to be Republicans. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, people with nurturant morality tend to be Democrats. Uh, and it's not just a matter of parties and party identification. It's a matter of understanding what all of this is about. And what is it? it is about person by person. And for those listening who maybe haven't heard our previous episodes, our first episode, and I believe our second or third episode, deal with the differences between strict father morality and nurturant morality and kind of spell those out. So if you go and listen to those, that, that some of this conversation might make more sense. We're definitely assuming that some of the people, many of the people listening to us have already listened to the podcast. If that's not the case... And you can go back and look at our first uh, 17 episodes, but definitely the first three. Now, on that question of morality and where the conservatives are headed, it seems to me like many of the people, well, let me put it this way. It seems to me that there are many people who seem to falsely believe the lie that Trump won the election. They've been brainwashed by mm -hmm. propaganda and disinformation. And I think that that's the case with some of them because some of these same people are also dying because they won't get the COVID vaccine. So they are obviously under a delusional belief that they are allowing to rule their lives uh, to the detriment of their own health. Mm -hmm. But there are also uh, principled Republicans who have proven they're not willing to go along with Trump, who have been voices against Trump 
uh, we may not agree with them on everything. People like the Lincoln Project, but they have shown, hey, we're Republicans. We're for the things Republicans are for, but we're not going to go along with Trump in the end of democracy. And that's something we can appreciate. But there, it's pretty clear, though, that the Republican base, whether they've been brainwashed or whether they just are overtly supportive of overthrowing democracy is completely willing to go along with whatever Trump can come up with. And I guess the question I have for you on that, this willingness to overthrow democracy, to undermine elections, to win even if you lose, is the strict father ideology more important to these conservatives than the idea of America? That isn't the possible question for them. From their point of view, uh, their view is what is the, the idea of America. They don't see it as any con any conflict because they don't have a, the uh, empathetic view of democracy. So they just it's just not there. You know, uh, democracy for them means you know there's uh, according to their view of what's right and wrong that should be played out. And um, they have a very clear view of what's right and wrong. So um, that that question can't be asked of them. So they're so blinded by their beliefs that they don't see a contradiction. I wouldn't say blinded. It is that their beliefs are internal to them, just as our, our beliefs are internal to us. And, you know, that's just how people are. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they have, they, they believe what they believe. And it's hard for them to overcome something that has defined their very being for most of their lives. They have a moral view of what it means to be right and wrong. And, how, and who determines what's right and wrong. And how it's determined. That view has, you know, operated... Uh, throughout most of their lives. It's not something that they can change overnight or just uh, see that someone else has another view and say, oh, let me uh, consider it fairly. It's not, that's not a possibility. I mean, that's just not how the brain works. But I feel like if there was an election and it was clear the Republican had won, but the Democrat was cheating, lying, you know, casting doubt, using the courts... I don't feel like most Democrats or progressives would want to go along with that. I feel like they would be speaking perhaps to their own uh, detriment in terms of winning immediate political power. I, I don't. Isn't there a difference between progressives and conservatives in terms of a willingness to cheat and completely destroy the democracy in order to to win? Or do you think we're there's a similarity? They don't see it as cheating. They see it as imposing a strict father morality that they see as correct. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, there's an issue that arises in families, you know, where you have a strict father uh, and, uh, you know, a nurturing mother, and they're different. And then, you know, uh, and children can go in different ways. Uh, you know, this arises in, in family life all the time. Yeah, when you have to do, when, when the parent is wrong, I, I've certainly had some of that experience recently where a parent is very wrong about something like, say, vaccines, and the children have to go along with that. And, uh, But I don't know. I think we're going to have to dig in some more on, on, on that question of what, what makes 
I mean, I think we know what makes conservatives so ripe for authoritarianism. I guess the part where the real question for me, but you, you say it can't really be asked of, of strict father conservatives is, the, does your ideology matter more than the American idea, but you say that they see them as the one as the same? That's right. They see it as one and the same. What is the path forward for this country if we stay on this collision course between authoritarianism and democracy with one side willing to break the laws, maybe even pursue violence, certainly game the system uh, in order to win? Or I should say in order to take power. Well, there's something that is uh, cannot be spoken in the media in general, uh, whether it's the liberal media or the conservative media, which is framing and its effects. Uh, you know, issues are framed. We've spoken a lot about framing. They have to do with how we understand uh, what the issues are, what's important, what the elements are, and so on. And that's largely unconscious. Uh, and it has consequences, you know, in many, many areas of life. And you don't know that it has consequences because most frames are unconscious for most people. They just see it as what's, what's right, period. So when they have an unconscious frame that they're accepting that has wide consequences, the consequences are seen as just naturally correct. They're not aware of the frame that brings them together and that it is a frame, that it is, 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 is a mental structure that frames how one understands, and it's not the only mental structure that's possible, and in fact, uh, it isn't shared by a lot of people. And, you know, when there are con conflicting frames, these, this idea that, the, that people work by frames, that frames are unconscious and determinative of uh, a great deal of your life, is not there in the in public discourse. You know, uh, you won't hear this discussed on, you know, any ca cable news or any cable channel or even asked in, uh, you know, as a, a question for discussion and, you know, uh, and so on. It's just not discussed. And this basic fact of life that determines so much of our existence it seems to be undiscussable in public media right now. And the, the fact that, you know, basically, um, you know, your, your uh, news channels, whether they're, you know, progressive or conservative, don't seem to be able to say to their listeners, uh, you have unconscious structures, mental structures, that determine what you believe and that you can't access them consciously. They can be studied by the outside, by scholars and experts who know how to study them and see the generalizations that are involved. But, you know, in general, you're not going to be aware of them. People don't want to know that, uh, and don't want to hear, that they are reasoning and thinking and acting every day in their lives according to some mental structure that they don't know they have. Nobody wants to hear that. So it's not something that can be said. You know, I can't imagine a news going on a, you know, a cable cable news show and, and saying that and having people say, oh, yeah, that's true, and then discussing the consequences. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't happen. 
Well, I think that news consumers are attuned to a very different product. There's more heat than light there. You know, we're going to, if there's a dog napping of a cute dog, that's going to be all over the TV. Yeah. You know, a, a smash and grab robbery at a, at a store is a lot more important and magnified than the attempt to smash and grab and loot American democracy. And so there's this sort of cognitive dissonance where we're never going to get around to these deeper topics. I mean, I think people who have been in therapy might be open to a discussion right. about framing. I think people who've done psychedelics might be open to a <laughs> yeah. discussion about framing. But most people would, I think, uh, you know, news channels and media outlets are after high volumes of readership and they don't care if it's shallow for the most part. And so when you're looking for shallow, you're not looking to d dive into the deeper underlying issues, which mm -hmm. you, you know, especially if you got editors and producers who, who don't really read lots of deep books, you, you, people don't even know that they should be talking about these things. They don't know that these things are there. I mean, we were just discussing uh, a New York Times column that said, well, words don't actually matter. That's not what frames politics. It's about the policy, which is just anybody who knows anything about cognitive science or political campaigns knows that's just a, you know, a, a rubbish. And it's just sad to see how far uh, from the truth people can be on some of these things. The idea that words uh, don't matter, that, you know, we, we shouldn't worry about what language we use when we describe things. In fact, if we look at polls and focus groups, that you could talk, you can describe the same exact policy or thing, and depending on the words you use, people will react to it very, very differently. And we'll, we'll, we're going to go into that a little more in depth at some point. But here's another question for you: uh, What needs to happen with the press when it comes to covering the conservative ideology and the move toward more extreme authoritarianism? Is the press just going to cover this from a neutral point of view as partisan bickering? Uh, do we not realize what authoritarians do to the free press once they overthrow a democracy? I'm afraid so. That's what I see. I see what there's a treatment of the uh, rise of authoritarianism on, in conservative circles as being just uh, a party division. You know, this party believes that and this party, the other party believes something different. And they don't see that one has to do with authoritarianism and the other has to do with democracy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, they would be, they, they're supposed to be neutral between the parties if they're, you know, news anchors or people on, you know, on television news or radio news. They're not supposed to, you know, be taking a stand on these things. They're supposed to just be reporting what people say and what they believe and, you know, what what positions they're taking on issues. They're not supposed to be, uh, you know, saying what can and can't be thought in terms of these positions. And uh, But they are saying that, right? When they quote certain people, when they accept certain frames, when they give equivalence to truth and lies, uh, you know, it, it, the well, message that comes through to people, one side tends to win. Well, what they do is they take uh, interview people who their audiences tend to believe and they get their opinions uh, and those opinions tend to be believed. They're seen as opinions uh, but opinions by people uh, whose opinions should be respected. You know, they're not seen as deep truths uh, that we're not conscious of. 
On the subject of who gets quoted and what their motives are and who gets to help define what reality is, we were actually impressed by a piece of writing this week. And that was a, a column by Jean Guerrero of the Los Angeles Times, and she's a columnist. And she wrote a piece called Stop Letting Hate Groups Control the Immigration Debate. And in the piece, she detailed how a handful of anti-immigrant groups linked to a white nationalist have succeeded in infiltrating mainstream media outlets with their quotes. And in fact, they are helping to shape the debate around immigration, but readers generally never find out that these groups are linked to white nationalist groups, or even, uh, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, groups like the Federation for American Immigration Reform and the Center for Immigration Studies, which sound neutral, are classified as hate groups. And Guerrero writes about this, and she really castigates the media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, for which she writes, and the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and the Associated Press, for publishing articles citing these groups and similar groups, often without, quote, sufficient context, end quote, about their backgrounds. And she basically goes on to say that these groups and their quotes uh, have helped create this sort of anti-immigrant hysteria, putting pressure on the vice president to go to the border, uh, forcing the Democrats to take on a tougher, more Trumpian approach to immigration, mm -hmm. telling people to stay home and the border's closed. So longtime readers of your work and listeners to this podcast know that this is something we talk about a lot, which is framing. The conservative side has always excelled at framing the debate. They know the power of marketing and communication, and they often beat progressives and Democrats at this. They are more active. They put more money. Conservative billionaires put a lot more money into training people to speak, funding institutes to provide ready-made cookie-cutter quotes that are juicy and ready to go, and all of those are you know, tied to research that shows that this can move people further to the right, generally. Um, and we know that that's important because that repetition is the key to getting your message across and, and changing people's brains. So I guess a question here, George, is how, how well, A, it's good to have a, a journalist writing about this and criticizing her own peers in the media for falling prey to this. But uh, what can be done about this? This has been an ongoing problem for a long time. When will the media or, uh, you know, progressives or Democrats learn how to counteract the Republican frame machine? Uh, it requires that framing become part of news. That there is a discussion within the news about regularly, every day, about what framing is, how it works, and who's framing what and what issues and what uh, consequences there are of adopting these frames, and that they are unconscious mostly. That you don't know when you're adopting a frame. You're, you just pick it up as you know the, the way to understand something. And that's the way it's presented. So unless framing is overtly studied in newscasting, you'll never know. Most people will never find out. Framing is not a, topping for a, a topic for a newscast. And it should be topics for newscasts every day. What are the frames out there now? Or at the very least for 
the news meeting of the editors. Okay, mm-hmm. who's pushing what? What? Where's this narrative coming from? You know, does Kamala Harris really need to visit the border, or are we allowing a question, uh, an issue pushed by the right wing, to become our question and to become what frames the entire debate? Because part of what Guerrero writes about was that, you know, the Republicans started taunting Kamala Harris about not visiting the border. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's the question every journalist is asking her. When are you going to the border? When are you going to the border? It literally became what she had to do. Of course, you can never win by actually doing what they tell you to do. You can only lose because they weren't happy with the fact that she chose a part of the border where they didn't feel reflected mm-hmm. the uh, the problems they, they felt needed to be highlighted. So, you know, so I think part, part of that conversation has to take place in newsrooms, in the leadership of newsrooms, to understand that the language we're seeing come across in these quotes is not neutral. A lot of it's planned. A lot of it's planted. A lot of it has a very strategic purpose. And I feel like often, and I've used this metaphor before, I think we in an unpublished essay from maybe 2017 that we did, uh, oftentimes, <clears throat> and this was before I returned to journalism, it seems like a lot of journalists view their job as being the dogs who chase the ball. The ball gets thrown, chase the ball, bring it back to the readers. But no one ever stops to think of who's throwing the ball. Should we be chasing this ball? Mm-hmm. Maybe we shouldn't chase the ball, right? And so if it just becomes this reactionary, go get the news because you, you're on deadline and, oh, here's a quote in your inbox from a legitimate sounding organization that you don't really know much about, it requires journalists and editors being trained to look a few degrees more more deeply. I don't know that we're going to get all citizens to, to look that deeply into these things, but I, do you think I, that's the level of... Would that work? No. I don't think it would work. I think you actually need to have the public engaged in this and have journalists talking about the frames being used uh, by their own news sources and others and what what justifies using them and what doesn't and what it means to be using them. Unless the idea of framing is out there as part of understanding everyday news uh we're just going to have uh you know uh arbitrary decisions by editors uh you know uh deciding these things rather than the public understanding what's involved so if you believe that the public should and could understand what is involved in these decisions then you've got to to be talking about framing as news and this is, this is important. I mean, framing should be news. There should be news about framing. Mm-hmm. And maybe there should be a, a, a little section of everyday cable news shows, uh, you know, giving a few minutes at least to frames of the day that are coming out there. What are, are there new ones out there? What are the most powerful ones? Here's what they are. And here are the opponent frames. And this is the way you, you know, and you can ask yourself, are you using one or more of these frames? And uh, how do you feel about using them? Do you want to? Do you think they're the right things for you to do or not? Or does the frame reflect reality? I I think one of the main debates right right now, and I think we're going to see this more in 2022, is going to be over crime. And statistically, crime is at the lowest point it's been since the early 1960s. You know, there are some upticks right now in Things like homicide, we had some very lurid uh, viral videos of robberies. But for the most part, statistically, 
there is less crime than there has been in decades. At the same time, the narrative, the frame out there is complete chaos, everything out of control, which leads, of course, to the conservative framing that you need to vote for Republicans and for conservative laws because that's the only way to impose law and order. And when the media reflexively chases a story where we all know the data doesn't support the, the theory, we are creating, we're perpetuating a frame that's untrue, but we're framing that issue in the minds of people. And study after study shows that people's view of how bad crime is, is always out of sync with the actual reality, mm-hmm. and largely because of the media. Well, the media um, sells because of fear. The media, you know, news in the media has everything to do with fear. And, or fear for yourself, or saying, isn't this terrible for someone else? Or for people, you know, where there's been, you know, uh, a tornado or something like that. You know, but it, fear sells. And where ratings are, are so important, uh, and, you know, uh, what sells is going to be on TV. So you're going to have fear that way. And nobody is going to say we're framing this in terms of fear because we need to, we need to, to get more people watching our shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that is the fact. Well, people who report on crimes, even though they don't reflect what most people experience in the course of a day, feel they're doing a public service by doing that, I think. Well, to some extent they are, depending, providing that they're putting it in a context of uh, you know, whether the crime is rare or not, uh, whether there is a reason to be afraid because of these crimes or not. I mean, uh, the issue of crime has to do with fear. And so the question is, you know, are you reporting it saying you should be afraid? Or are you reporting this saying there probably isn't a good reason to be afraid, but this does happen now and then, and you should watch out? I mean, you know, those are to- totally different messages. Mm-hmm. And they're messages about uh, how this should be framed in terms of, of your fear. I think uh, to connect it back to the column that Jean Guerrero wrote, it's not just immigration, obviously, where we have interested groups mm-hmm. framing the debate. Yeah. It's crime, it's taxes. It's anything where people are fighting over it. You know, the, the debate over abortion and reproductive freedom. You know, one side is definitely out there. And in, in some of these fights, there's two sides. The, the, I think they're progressive groups that have been fighting to uh, frame the debate around uh, abortion rights. But, you know, everywhere you look, you've got to question who, who is the source. You know, is there data to back it up? Um, is it funded by a hate group or a self-interested billionaire or white nationalist or police groups Mm -hmm. Um, and often when you when you look at the I think the loudest voices on an issue uh, there is a a bit of organization behind it and if you're talking about uh, right-wing groups that are pushing for things that don't match reality or the facts don't back it up there's usually some pretty big money behind it that is that's quite self-interested so this uh, you know I think we we like this column because it, it, it's as close as you get often to people talking about who's framing the debate. Mm-hmm. Do you think that legitimate news outlets would quote groups linked to white nationalists if they had to say that in print? No. 
So you think maybe one of the solutions here might be that if you had to add that context, then you're going to find other people to quote. Because I don't think you generally don't quote the KKK when talking about That's right. about racial matters. There, you don't, you know, you generally don't go seek what do the neo Nazis of America think about this. So why should you be able to quote a hate group with a gussied up name? And you had mentioned when we were talking on our break, there's always some name that sounds very innocuous that goes along with these things. What? Right. And the uh, the question is, you know. You, you should be... See, how do you say so-and-so is a hate group? And can you be sued for saying that? Mm-hmm. Well, if the Southern Poverty Law Center is saying it, then you can definitely say it, and they can be sued for it, right? Right. You can quote... Okay. You can do it if you can quote some believable source. But you can't just do it yourself. Because then you're liable to be sued. Well, the... I think the media can get away with a lot more things and tends to have more lawyers. And, and you would definitely find out, you could put it in the context of that it's linked to a white nationalist or that the Southern Poverty Law Center. And, and according to the Media Matters for America study that Guerrero cited, uh, only 15% of the stories studied, quoted, and quoted those sources provided sufficient context of their extremist ties or of their connections to the Trump administration or restrictionist immigration officials, end quote. So there have been 15% of the stories that did include that context, but for a lot of people, if you're reading something and it sounds like a legitimate immigration organization, they may not know that context. I think including that context would be an important reform for the media. And I think now that I've returned to journalism myself, I think I could see how some people get rolled by these sources. If you're on deadline trying to write something and here's the ready-made quote that's already cooked up and ready to go, it's going to be really tempting to include that. Yeah, These people are probably introducing themselves and putting you on their lists and being very proactive and shameless about being helpful. And, it, you know, as we've talked about a lot, progressive groups tend not to be as good as that kind of sales mm-hmm. sales job on on their ideas so right well also because it isn't they don't see it as in their self-interest as opposed to the public interest Mm -hmm. see on the other side it's in their self-interest so um you know that has to be taken into account too what do you mean by that well who's who's funding yeah yeah, so I guess you're saying there's a degree which a conflict, it's not neutral, right? And so you have to, you can't make it sound neutral. It's a group that, that, that is anti-immigrant, and so they're being funded to promote this anti-immigrant mm-hmm. right. uh, idea and ideology. And at some point, I think you have to think about, wait, these people are getting paid to do this. They're not doing it because they're just activists. They're... It's mm-hmm. funded. I mean, the same could be said for people trying to take climate action for, yeah. you know, there's a lot of groups now that are funded special interests to do good things as well as bad things. Oh, they always have been. But I just think that when it's related to hate groups or nationalists, uh, there should be a bit more context. And I'm sure there are groups that are uh, not pro-immigration that don't have those ties, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe those should be sought out in terms of providing the the -hmm. words on this let's move on to a different framing issue here this is one we've talked about a lot and i think we took some heat for saying this early on but it really seems clear now that the defund the police frame has now definitively failed 
even in cities like Oakland and uh, Portland and other progressive cities where there was this sort of movement around defund the police. I don't think anybody really tried to actually defund the police. Mm -hmm. But the defund the police frame, uh, any legitimate politician seems to be abandoning that now. And people seem to have realized that it was a terrible message. It didn't work. And it really did more than anything. What it did was help police groups and conservatives frame Democrats as bad on public safety. Right. Absolutely. So we did a bit of thinking on this and spelled out, I guess it's kind of a post-mortem, on why some of the reasons why defund didn't work. There may be other reasons that people can tell us about other reasons. But I think first, defund the police did not really express a, a value. It was more of a policy point, mm -hmm. the defunding. And it failed to communicate what it meant to most people because it was simply... Uh, the message itself was a policy mechanism, well, a it budget. Wasn't just, it was a punitive policy. Yeah. And the idea is that this would be bad, this would punish the police for doing bad things. But there's no way it could. I mean, it's a general policy that covers whether they're doing good or good things or bad things. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. you know, which we said, it was just dumb. So in that defund the police was punitive, it's more like a strict father framing than a nurturer framing. Absolutely, it is. And so it's a strict father ideology framing. We're going to take something away from you. We're going to punish you, all of you. Yet that does not really appeal to the progressive mentality either because that's really not the way the progressive mentality thinks. Right. They would think of reform the police, make the police better, improve public safety. Which brings us to our next point, which was defund the police misses the opportunity to frame a positive solution, which are tangible alternatives to policing rooted in care and nurturance, you know, making sure that the people who respond to mental health episodes are not armed police officers. There are all kinds of things that I think are very popular ideas that can be achieved, but are not going to be achieved by defund, which has only created sort of panic. Uh, you know, another problem with defund is that it's open to interpretation. Some people think it means there'll be no police. Yeah. And while some on the far left may think that sounds great, the vast majority of voters do not think that sounds great. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't think that sounds great. I mean, you know, uh, you, you need police for many things. Yeah, there are some very bad people out there, but if you're sure. in this yes. naive far left mentality that everything would be fine without the police and the police are the ones causing all the problem, then, then you have this sort of uh, issue where that sounds i've i've talked to people who think that actually sounds great to have zero police and that somehow there would be a utopian response where everything would be fine and that and, and i i don't think having grown up in a rough neighborhood where there weren't a lot of police around i don't think you get rid of all the problems by get ridding all, of all the police there are times when you actually mm -hmm. need someone with a gun who's supposed to uphold the law to come and, and deal with the situation of course, there have been a lot of problems. A lot of those cops have been doing the opposite of upholding the law. Many of them have been breaking right. the law. Those are problems that actually have to be dealt with. But uh, the broad interpretation that we would have no police became a blank canvas upon which the right wing and conservatives and cops could just paint a horrific yeah. apocalyptic picture of what was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, these there, there there's an issue about what will increase public safety, period. 
and that's not discussed as such because you have to, you know, there are institutions like the police. And so the question is, what do you say about those institutions? And, you know, there are police review commissions and things like that that have been out there, uh, sometimes su successful, sometimes not. Police review boards have, uh, you know, have been instituted to oversee extreme cases. Uh, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. But, you know, that's one kind of solution that's been tried. But the idea that um, there might be some overs oversight of the police is an important kind of thing. Well, and California has actually passed a slate of important police reforms over the past few years. And those reforms were achieved by building consensus, gaining support through the legislative process, and not by using radical right. slogans that people don't like. And I think, you know, our discussion, and we'll, we'll write something about defund the police, but it's not just to spike the ball, but also to make it clear why bad framing does so much damage to good ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, um, you know, that's an interesting slogan. What? Bad framing can do damage to good ideas. <laughs> this framing kills good ideas. Well, I think that uh, that needs to be taken up seriously. I mean, uh, framing is not always good by, by any means. There's all sorts of bad framing around. And uh, that is part of understanding framing. To say, hey, there's a frame here and it's really dangerous. Or there's a frame here and it's not doing any good. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, you know, that framing is something that ought to be out in the open, discussed, criticized, uh, evaluated, and so on. And, and that's one of the reasons we're doing all this, why we're talking about framing. Because, you know, framing has to be judged and should be judged openly in the, in, in, you know, by the public. They should be known, it should be discussed, argued, and so on. And right now, the media doesn't see it as something that can be discussed. Mm -hmm. You can't turn on, you know, your local news and hear a discussion of framing. You can hear a pseudo-discussion about framing, where they don't talk about framing in itself. They talk about, you know, whether we should consider this as such and such and so on, where it really is a framing issue. But the idea that you have a general discussion about framing and that framing issues regularly arise, and that they're news. I think that's important. I think we should have that. But it's not there in the media right now. Well, we'll keep talking about it uh, here and elsewhere. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.